Good evening, and welcome to Socrates in the City, the thinking person's alternative to voting. <laughs> Thank you. Of course, I'm just kidding. I know that most of you have already voted, and Mayor Bloomberg thanks you for your votes. The check is, of course, in the mail. Thank you. Um, there should be enough seats for everyone, but there might not be, so what are you going to do? Um, Justin, you can, uh, you can help. There's, there's one seat here. There's a few seats scattered, but I think we should be... Uh, there's one seat there, and there's one seat there. I think that's four seats, so do your best. Um, okay, incidentally, speaking of Mayor Bloomberg, um, if you'd like to smoke tonight, please feel free to do so. Uh, the Union League Club has been grandfathered in. Um, while you're here, you're legally beyond, legally beyond the ken of Comrade Bloomberg's nanny state <laughs> and are thereby free to smoke, drink, and feed yourself if you're able. So it's a wonderful free market uh, club. Um, we have a spectacular evening planned. Uh, not tonight, but eventually. Uh, <laughs> We keep planning it, and it never happens, but eventually we will have a spectacular evening. Um, <laughs> as, as advertised, of course, this evening, we have a spectacular evening. Baroness Carolyn Cox is in the house, y'all. Yes. Um, in just a moment, she will be speaking on the topic of whether ideological Islam is compatible with liberal democracy. As most of you know, we don't normally get into politics of any sort at Socrates in the city, but uh, ultimately we decided that the question of whether ideological Islam is compatible with liberal democracy isn't at, it, at its roots a political question. Socrates, from whom we get our name, Socrates in the city, said that the unexamined life is not worth living. In order to take seriously his lapidary exhortation to examine our lives, we have to figure out what that means for society to be able to examine our lives, have the freedom to do that. We have to determine what societies will allow us to do that, why some will and why some won't, and it's something we're logically obliged to think about, and so we do this evening. And I thought Baroness Cox's thoughts on this would be a perfect place to start, and I'm confident that they will be. Uh, we are careful, it should be said up front, to differentiate Islam from Islamism, uh, just as we are careful to differentiate between the Beatles and Beatlemania. Don't, uh, don't confuse the two. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I should say that I had the great privilege of meeting Baroness Cox uh, at a conference at Princeton University this past spring where she was one of the speakers. Um, I heard what she had to say, and I was extremely impressed. As I listened, I eventually determined that her accent was indeed authentic. <laughs> I have to say I was happy... Uh, to know that it was. The sad fact is that so very many speakers put on airs and pretend to be British when the reality is that they are no more British than is Madonna Ciccaroni. <laughs> Oz Guinness and John Polkinghorne, Sir John Polkinghorne, are the two who most immediately come to mind as having employed this rather embarrassing and transparent stratagem that of exploiting a plummy British accent to gain credibility with American audiences and using that accent to cover up the tragic paucity of their ideas. <laughs> it's a shame, and yet I invite them back again and again. It almost makes no sense, but there it is. 
in any case, uh, the Baroness's accent having been determined to be authentic, I extended an invitation, and here she is now, uh, not, not without some, some trouble. I'm a very bad administrator, as you have mostly figured out over the months, and uh, she almost didn't get here because of my bad administration. But here she is, thank goodness. For those who are, who are wondering, yes, Baroness Cox really is a Baroness. That's why we call her Baroness Cox or Lady Cox. She was made a Baroness in 1982 by Margaret Thatcher. We have a fascination, I think, in America with titles. As many of you know, I am a Viscount. Um, <laughs> but it's not something I like to flaunt on this side of the pond. And please, if you don't mind, never mention it outside this room. As far as anyone needs to know, I'm just a regular Joe, just like you. Um, all right, seriously, let me tell you a little bit about Baroness Cox. Before I do, uh, let me point out another very distinguished guest whom we have with us tonight. Tonight we have with us in the room um, the very Reverend Archbishop Akinola of Nigeria, who is right here in the front row. And if you know who he is, you're impressed by more than the title in both cases. These are very courageous people tonight. Um, like Archbishop Akinola, Baroness Cox, as I say, is a person of great courage. Not something we say lightly in this society, but it's true. She was created a life peer in 1982 and has been a deputy speaker of the House of Lords since 1985. Lady Cox was founder chancellor of Bournemouth University and is a vice president of the Royal College of Nursing. She is heavily involved in international humanitarian and human rights work, serving as a non-executive director of the Andrei Sakharov Foundation and as a trustee of Merlin uh, um, Medical Emergency Relief Intern International and, and the Siberian Medical University. She's also Honorary President of Christian Solidarity Worldwide UK and Chairman of the Executive Board of the International Islamic Christian Organization for Reconciliation and Reconstruction. Lady Cox has been honored with the Commander Cross of the Order of Merit of the Republic of Poland and the Wilberforce Award for her humanitarian work. She has also been awarded an honorary fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons of England, as well as honorary doctorates by universities in the United Kingdom, the United States, the Russian Federation, and Armenia. And I should say, by the way, I am working on my honorary doctorate. <laughs> even, even now. Um, Baroness Cox's work in the field of humanitarian aid and human rights has taken her on many missions to conflict zones. Many of you know about this, about her work. Uh, including the Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, um, many missions to the Sudan, missions uh, to be with the Karen and Karenite people in the jungles of eastern Burma, um, North Korea, and with communities suffering from religious conflict in Indonesia. Uh, Socrates in the city welcomes you, Baroness Cox, this evening, and is honored to have you among us and with us tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Baroness Carolyn Cox. Um, thank you so very much indeed for that very, very warm welcome. I only hope there may be some similar applause after I've finished. Uh, Viscount Metaxas, thank you so much for your introduction. <laughs> it's always nice to know one's peers. I would like, if I may, just to begin by introducing myself a little more modestly than the excessively generous introduction you've just heard. Because all I ever say about myself is that I am a nurse and a social scientist by intention. That's what I thought I was doing in my life. 
and a baroness by astonishment. And I've never recovered from the shock of being appointed to the British House of Lords. And I have to say it was some divine sense of humor for two reasons. One is I was, and still am, pathologically shy. So shy that when about 100 years ago I was still at school, for some reason they made me head of school, I think to stop me playing practical jokes, but that brought with it for a shy person the terrifying responsibility of being the ex officio president of the debating society. And I was a miserable failure because whenever in debates uh, there was an opportunity I should say something, I was so busy winding up my courage to speak, the moment had passed, so I was totally silent. <laughs> Dead loss of a president of a debating society and a terrible background uh, to someone being appointed to the House of Lords, which is regularly, I think, deemed to be one of our premier debating chambers in the United Kingdom. But it was also God's sense of humor because I don't like politics. I was not in the political arena. I respect those who are professional politicians, but I don't like politics. And indeed, I was the first baroness I'd ever met. So that shows, <laughs> that shows you how, how out of the loop I was. But I do, of course, cherish and do take with great uh, respect and responsibility the privilege of being able to speak in one of the houses of the British Parliament particularly being able to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, whether as a nurse on behalf of some of the more vulnerable people in our own society, but increasingly on behalf of forgotten peoples in forgotten lands. And it is my very great privilege to spend a lot of my time with those forgotten peoples in forgotten lands, many trapped behind closed borders. And I think for myself as a Christian, I have a particular mandate, a particular mission to try to reach the most unreached, unheard and unhelped peoples in the world. It does mean I spend a lot of my time crossing borders illegally. Thank you for having such an illegal and deviant baroness here tonight. Also means I incur all sorts of penalties. I have a prison sentence at the moment uh, in Khartoum for illegal entry. And I say to that regime, stop declaring heirs as no-go and I won't need to come in illegally. I don't think they are fair or just laws which cut people off from all aid and advocacy. So if you change your policy, I won't need to come in illegally, but while it's there, I will. So thank you for having a convict as well as an illegal border crosser in front of you tonight. There go my credentials. And perhaps in the background there, maybe seen some of the seeds of my concern, which is a subject which brings us together here tonight. Very briefly, um, I would like to set the scene with three major headings addressing this very complex and sensitive subject, and I am aware it is a sensitive subject. The whole issue of Islam, um, the religion of Islam, political Islam, and militant Islam, and the relationship between these variations on the theme and democracy, and the issues which we must address. The talk I usually give is given the name which I think, for me, sums up where I stand on this issue, Bridges, not walls, reconciliation through realism. And I think if we are really to address what I do see as a great challenge in many respects to our spiritual, cultural, and political heritage, we must root and ground our response in realism. But we must do so on a basis of being willing to build bridges, not walls, and reconciliation, not gratuitous confrontation but that reconciliation must be based on realism. 
And I suppose the initial seeds of my concern were sown coming in from many of those no-go areas, coming in from many of those parts of the world where people are dying at the hands of militant Islam, which is growing, um, from Sudan, of course, with the National Islamic Front regime there, declaring explicit jihad against all who oppose it, including moderate Muslims as well as traditional believers and Christians, and having walked through the killing fields of Sudan, two million dead, four million displaced before Darfur, and now more died in Darfur than in the whole of the tsunami. From being in Nigeria, up in northern Nigeria, in the states there, in Kano, Kaduna, and Bauchi states, and now in Plateau State, where militant jihad is a source of very intense conflict. Indonesia. Indonesia, down in the areas, and we'll come to these places in just a moment, but I was down in Ambon in southern Maluku, when there were between four to 5,000 jihad warriors down there, and further killing fields. And I began to study Islam, and I came back and studied Islam seriously, looked at what was happening in the UK, a little bit what's happening in the United States. And here is a subject I do think we need to consider, and for those of us who are Christians, to pray for wisdom and discernment, for an appropriate spiritual and strategic response to a strategic endeavor to Islamize our own societies. So very briefly, the three topics or three headings, um, and if anyone wants any copies, I think maybe a briefing paper which we could make available afterwards, which will be the essential notes which I've spoken First is the issues and the threat, and that will be fairly starkly put. Secondly, understanding that threat of militant Islamism. Thirdly, some of the tactics you may perceive that are being used by those who wish to spread Islam throughout the world. And then my conclusion is bridges, not walls. Reconciliation through realism. So, first of all, and this will be fairly starkly put, and I'm not going to speak for too long because I do want time for question and answer where you can ask me to clarify those points which I'm putting over in a fairly schematic form on purpose in order to get through what I regard as the main issues and put them on the table in front of you. First, the issues and the threat. I must begin with a very important caveat, and that is that the vast majority of the world's 1.2 billion Muslims are peaceable, law-abiding, and often culturally extremely hospitable people. And that applies wherever we meet them. Secondly, that there is a small, relatively small number, who are militant Muslims, and their objective is explicitly the Islamization of the entire world, including Europe and the United States. Militant Muslims, or Islamists, have revived the teachings of traditional Islam and seek to apply them today. We see that in our own society. We see that in the countries which I've already mentioned and in other countries such as Malaysia and many parts of the world. And my deep concern, point of view of our own society and the way we respond, is that unless, unless we are seen to take militant Islam seriously, and develop appropriate responses to its challenges to our traditions and our heritage, then there is likely to be a backlash against all Muslims because Islamic terrorism creates fear, and, of course, terrorism is designed to create fear. And fear very often loses its rationality and loses the power to discriminate, and therefore there will be a backlash against all Muslims unless we are seen to be taking appropriate measures in the face of 
Islamic terrorism and Islamic attempts to perhaps change the nature of our own societies. So what I'm saying is not an attempt in any way to stir up Islamophobia. It's an attempt to reduce Islamophobia by making the necessary distinctions and by making the necessary uh, suggestions for ways in which we should respond to threats to our own society or threats to other societies which impinge on their freedoms um, in a way that will differentiate uh, those to whom I think we should direct our attention and the majority of the moderate, peaceable Muslims who otherwise will get affected by a generic backlash. So that is my initial starting point, my caveat, and is the backdrop to all I say. Therefore, we need to understand the threat in all its forms in order to develop an appropriate strategic response, appropriate spiritually for those of us who are Christians, appropriate politically, appropriate, because freedom, which is our heritage, is indivisible. And where people do not enjoy freedom, we cannot really enjoy our freedom. I think we have a responsibility to use our freedoms to speak out for those who suffer the deprivation of freedoms in other parts of the world. So that's the agenda. Moving on to understanding the threat of Islamism or political or militant Islam. There are just one or two key headings here. Happy to come back to them to amplify and clarify them. First, and I think fundamentally, traditional Islam, traditional Islam is essentially a theocracy and a totalitarian ideology which differs fundamentally from the Hellenistic Judeo-Christian tradition underpinning the epistemology, theology, and political cultures of our own society and their values. Very, very briefly, and I come back to this, um, the Hellenistic Judeo-Christian tradition, which we term in our own publication, which is on sale out there, uh, the Western academic mode, is premised on the concept of humility. Way back in the fifth century, a Greek poet said the gods did not reveal from the beginning all things to us, but by seeking and learning, we may know things better. However, unto no man is the whole truth given. And the whole academic concept in Western traditions is the academic concept of tentativeness of the nature of academic knowledge, openness of that knowledge to critical debate, to always to challenge Popper's conjectures and refutations. We hold our knowledge, we hold our concept of truth about the natural and scientific mode of understanding the natural, physical, and human world uh, on the basis of tentativeness, always open to critical evaluation in the light of new evidence, new findings, critical debate. The Islamic tradition was like that in the early centuries, what's called it-jihad, and in that time, Islamic science flourished and indeed made a great contribution to knowledge in areas like astronomy and mathematics. And then, a few centuries down the line, the gate of it-jihad closed, and all questions were deemed to have been answered, and all knowledge is vested in the ulema, the community of scholars, and open criticism is extremely difficult in Islam today. And it's not really at the heart of traditional Islamic thinking. So there is a fundamental difference here in the nature of epistemology, in the nature of knowledge, in the nature of critical debate, which we do need to understand and to study. And it's also associated with political institutions such as the academies, the academies of the West are premised on this concept of constant criticism, constant passing on of what we do know. Obviously, we transmit the knowledge we've inherited, but it's always open to evaluation in the light of new research, new scholarship. 
whereas in the Islamic world there is a given, and knowledge and truth is formulated according to the teachings of the Prophet, the revelations of Allah to the Prophet, and the Hadith, the experiences, the teachings of the followers who wrote down what they remembered of the life and teachings of the Prophet, and the Sunnah, which is the combination of the traditional teachings. And that is the true nature, the focus and locus of truth in the Islamic world. Looking a little bit more um, practically in a way, Islamists are working strategically to influence and in time to take over other societies. If you look at the teachings of traditional Islam, you will find that the world is only divided into two, the Dar al-Hab and the Dar al-Islam. The Dar al-Islam is the world that is already ruled by Islam. The rest of the world is a Dar al-Hab, the world of war. You don't even anything else. And that is the underpinning of much of the ideology and the activity of those who are out to make sure that the rest of us become the Dar al-Islam, because that is only when final peace will be achieved. A bit like the Soviet concept, the final peace will be when Soviet communism rules the world, mir emir. So there is this commitment to the takeover of the whole world. Traditional Islamic teaching has, I've already said, a different concept of truth, all the words of the Quran and the way of Muhammad, and can justify, and this is important for us to understand, particularly anyone involved in interfaith dialogues, if you live in the world of war or the world of jihad, then you can legitimately use a concept of takir or deception. And we actually can see that if you can actually see some of what is said uh, through the understanding of what may be behind it, then one can actually see this quite often in use. Just one example I might give is many times on British television, we have the leaders of our uh, Muslim societies. And they regularly quote the surahs or the verses of peace which are there in the Quran. But alongside these verses, and I'll come to this in a moment, are verses of the sword. And they conveniently do not refer to those. Although, according to the traditional teachings and the principle of abrogation, the later revelations actually abrogate the former revelations, and the later abrogations are the surahs, the verses of the sword, and the former um, revelations are the verses of peace. And so the traditional Islamic teaching, which will underpin the theology of Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups, are actually the verses of the sword, and that is being true to traditional Islamic teaching. So there is a, a, a slight deception, I would suggest, there. Also, um, the traditional Islam, and I have to say this, and it follows from the point I've just made, and I'm sorry to be so forthright, but I feel a little like Martin Luther, here stand I, can do no other. I have to tell the truth as we have discerned it, because ultimately it's only the truth which will make us free and bring freedom to all people. Traditional Islam is not inherently a religion of peace. It defines peace in terms of submission to Islam. There's, as I've said, the often quoted verses or surahs of peace are cancelled out or abrogated by the later revelations um, which are the verses of the sword. And you may well know them. If not, I'm happy to quote them in any discussion if you want to know what I'm getting at here. And then there are two very important concepts which I think we need to understand if we are looking at the world around us today. First, there is a concept of jihad. Now, there are different definitions of jihad in Islam. 
There is one definition, which is a spiritual definition, which is the struggle for the good life. And this will probably underpin much of Sufi Islam. And that is a spiritual struggle and something, I think, which we would all respect deeply, however one might interpret that in a religious context. But there is also the concept of jihad in its militaristic sense with violent conquest of the world. And that is a much more challenging uh, concept for us. And we see this uh, in the areas I've already mentioned. For example, in Sudan, um, in my advocacy work, where I like to speak on behalf of the forgotten peoples, I'm very concerned that in advocacy you should always hear two points of view, so you can't be accused of being one-sided, prejudiced, and partial. So when I took up the cause of what was happening in Sudan after 1989, when the militant Islamist regime, the National Islamic Front regime, took power by military coup and declared its militaristic jihad against all who oppose it, I'd been in southern Sudan, I'd been in the Nuba Mountains, I'd walked through the killing fields, I'd seen the carnage. I'd been there when the Antonovs were dropping their 500-kilogram bombs on villages and health clinics. Um, I walked, one of my most terrible visits ever was I landed an airstrip in northern Bar Ghazal, and the people came up and said just three days ago, uh, the government forces attacked with the jihad warriors, the Mujahideen, with the Murahaleen, the tribes people, they round up and arm and fight alongside the Mujahideen come and see what they've done. And we went to the nearby market at Abendan. They'd rounded up all the civilians. We saw the corpses piled high in the river Lol. They said, come footing with us. And we went footing, as they say, through 20 miles of complete scorched earth and carnage. The corpses of women and children, the burnt houses, the decapitated cattle, so there would be no food left for any survivors of the raid. Just hell on earth for 20, 20 miles of complete scorched earth policy. So I've been critical of what the regime was doing to its own people. But as I say, I believe in hearing both points of view. So I went to see the Sudanese ambassador, who told me all the good things the regime was doing. And I said, I'm delighted to hear it. I'd find it easier to talk about the good things if I could see them. So may I come to Khartoum and may I meet the leadership? Well, after a lot of haggling, I think they didn't really want to invite me, but they couldn't lose face, and I did find myself in Khartoum. I met the leaders. I met El Tarabi, who's the guru, the eminence grise behind what's going on in Khartoum and in Sudan. And he gave me a spate of lies. Now, many Westerners might not have known enough about Sudan to refute those lies, but I challenged them. He didn't like being challenged, probably particularly by a woman, and eventually threw us out of the house. I heard al-Bashir declaim on the fourth anniversary of the successful conquest by that regime to the huge friendship hall in Khartoum. And there were hundreds of jihad warriors there. And he used jihad in almost every other sentence. And every time it was responded to by Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, Allah, Allah, and the waving of Kalashnikovs. This was militaristic jihad. I met many of the ministers. They all confirmed it. Before we left, I would, as a guest, always a sense of honor and courtesy, show our draft report to our hosts to make sure we were not manipulating what they told us, that they felt it was a fair account of what we should have learned from them. And they endorsed our report, and they endorsed the fact that they are undertaking Islamic military jihad in Sudan. So I had it from their own words. In northern Nigeria, as I mentioned, I've been in many parts, and I've just read the Human Rights Watch Foundation's report on what's it like in northern, northern Nigeria, in Kano. Sharia is now in 12 states in Nigeria. 
The report from Kano, undertaken by an independent human rights organization, says that the situation now in Kano under Sharia is entirely different from what the Islamic authorities said it would be. When Sharia was being implemented, they always said it's only for the Muslims, it won't affect the Christians. Well, the reports coming out from Kano now are of the death and destruction, death of Christians, the destruction of churches, and even where there are schools, Christian schools, they have to have Islamic teaching. And many of the children, the Christian children who go to state schools, have to undergo training in Islam with a view to converting them to Islam. And the way in which the report is summarized is that Christians are virtually in what's known in Islam as a dhimmi status, a secondary citizen status in northern Nigeria, where there is Sharia today. And just in June of this year, I was in Plateau State, based in Jos, but I went out to many of the villages which have suffered from militant jihad very recently, where everything's been burnt. And again and again, we were told, both in those states, in Kano, Kaduna, Bautri, and Plateau State, that the international jihad warriors are now fighting alongside the Nigerian Muslims. There are francophones there, and they are so well-resourced with such sophisticated weapons that the Nigerian state security forces and police cannot protect the Christian villages and just flee as the jihad warriors come. I also had the opportunity to meet the registrar of the Sharia court in Kano, and I had with me a colleague who is actually um, was an Islamic lawyer and knows his Quran and Islamic law inside out. He's now a Christian. And he debated with the um, registrar of the Sharia court in Kano in northern Nigeria. And they had a kind of battle of wits and a battle of knowledge about the Quran. And my good friend won that battle. And in the end, the registrar of the Sharia court threw up his arms and said, Brother, you know the Quran better than I do. And I think he was so impressed, he must have thought my colleague was one of them. And he spelled out what they see as the future for Nigeria, which is the eventual change of a constitution which is based on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms to a Sharia constitution. Now, if that happens, that is going to be very, very serious. Briefly, Indonesia. Indonesia has a constitution, Panchasila, which has enshrined in it fundamental principles of commitment to religious liberty and cultural diversity. And indeed, Indonesia has honored and been honored by keeping those principles. And I have a great respect for the vast majority of Indonesian people. They are delightfully gracious, tolerant, generous, hospitable people. But 1999, things changed dramatically when international militant Islam or Islamism converged on Indonesia. I was down in Ambon, as I said, when there were over 5,000 jihad warriors in Ambon alone in southern Maluku. The last email I read before I left home last week in England came in from Indonesia, from Sulawesi. Three Christian girls have just been beheaded on their way home from school. I've been in Sulawesi. I will come back to a moment to positive initiatives to have been able to take in Indonesia, but the situation in Indonesia is on a knife edge. But we really only first heard about Indonesia on our television screens when Westerners were attacked in Bali. That was the first time Indonesia, I think, came in the focus for most of us on our radar screens. But I'd been down there before the first Bali attack, and thousands of Christians have been killed, hundreds of thousands displaced in intercommunal conflict. I mean, Muslims had suffered too, but the ratio was very, very much in favor, if you like, in terms of death and destruction of Christians and Christian villages 
and horrendous stories of atrocities against them. Indonesia is on knife edge and much needs prayer and support in maintaining the traditions which are enshrined in its Panchasina. There are senior um, Muslim politicians in Indonesia who wish to turn Indonesia into a Sharia nation. If that happens, that is going to be very, very serious for the people who live there, already had a foretaste of that in Aceh, and very serious for the geopolitical situation of Southeast Asia. As far as the UK is concerned, very briefly, developments there, um, perhaps best uh, illustrated by a film that was shown on British television way back in August 1999. The genesis of that film is quite interesting. Um, a good friend of mine who is a Sudanese, he's an Arab, he's a Muslim, but he hates what is happening to his own people in Sudan, and he's suffered at the hands of the National Islamic Front regime. He gave me a film, a video. It was a video taken of a terrorist training camp inside Sudan. It shows a lot of young black boys, I suspect those who were abducted in slave raids, which I'd witnessed in southern Sudan. It also shows a lot of adult jihad warriors, international terrorists, one might say. And they're being trained in the Quran and the Kalashnikov. And it shows a European dressed in appropriate garb, going round and giving out money to support the international jihad. And the message is, give your money and maybe your men to fight the international jihad. That um, video was taken out to Saudi. There it was reproduced. And one version came to Britain. And at the end of the video, which I've seen, uh, there is a dress in Leicester in England uh, where to go if you want to support the international jihad and where to give your money. Two friends of mine who are independent television camera filmmakers who have both been with me in Sudan on different occasions, walked and wept through the killing fields, uh, went to this, I think they probably grew beards, and went to this address, purported to represent a Saudi businessman who wanted to support the international jihad. And the person in Leicester told them where all the recruiting centers and training programs were going on in the United Kingdom. They went with their little cameras, and the film was shown on dispatches in August 1999. One scene is particularly graphic and illustrates, I think, the issues we need to be aware of. It shows, in all ironic places, Friends Meeting House, pacifist, Quaker Friends Meeting House, a meeting being uh, led by two of our leading Islamist militants in the UK, Sheikh Bakr Mohammed and Abu Hamza. And there's a, a huge crowd, I mean, I think larger than there is here tonight, of young men. Many of them obviously second-generation Muslims in the UK, many British converts to Islam. And what Sheikh Bakr Mohammed and Abu Hamza are saying it's very disturbing. They're declaiming, we don't believe in the laws of this land. We only believe in the laws of Allah. We're not going to waste our bullets on the kafirs, that's us. And then it goes into some nasty things. I think it says we'll rip out their intestines, we'll crush their heads. That's polemic. Then gets serious. Shows them teaching terrorist tactics. For example, it shows them teaching how it's possible to put up a net with balloons and explosives to bring a plane down coming into a London airport. The film then switches to a munitions expert to say, is this crazy or is this feasible? He says it's perfectly feasible. And then it gets really serious because it goes back and shows these two Islamist leaders declaiming to this large group of young men 
That's just one example. We only give you that as one example. We're fighting jihad in this country. Every one of you must go away and think of a similar terrorist tactic. It is jihad in Britain. It is kill or be killed. Well, that was shown in 1999. It was quite a long time before the activities of Abu Hamz and Sheikh Bakr Muhammad have very recently been curtailed. How many young men have been taught, inspired, challenged, encouraged to think in those terms in Britain in those intervening years? I find it very, very challenging. And perhaps Robert Reed, the young man who tried to be a shoe bomber on an American flight, is one of the graduates from one of those training schools. And I was talking to someone at the moment who's currently doing research into some of our Muslim communities in some of our cities and is very disturbed by the extent of, at the moment, hidden but very widespread what she calls aggressive anti-Westernism, hatred behind the, apparently at the moment, the smart shirts and the ties for people who are living ordinary lives in our society, but latent aggression. So I think there is a cause for concern. So very briefly, um, that's one example. I could give many others of concerns in the UK. I'll just give one more before I move on and then leave time open for discussion. But it's a particularly fascinating example. It was shortly after that film was shown in August 1999. We had a debate in the House of Lords. And it was on the international situation. It was January the 12th, 2000, just for the record. And it was opened by Lord Carrington and had a star-studded cast list of former ambassadors, foreign secretaries, really you know, VIPs, and little Tom Thumb, that was me. In that debate on the international situation, 30 speakers, I was the only one who mentioned Islam, although it is, I think, a key factor in many of the problem areas in the world today. What was particularly fascinating, and I promise you I'm not hallucinating, I've only had a half a glass of white wine, and this is all on the record and Hansard anyway. Within 10 seconds of starting my speech, the radio microphones were jammed for the first time ever in British history, the history of the British Parliament. 10 seconds before I finished, it was a time debate, 10 minutes, and we keep to time, that jamming stopped. The only way I could make myself heard was to shout into the microphone, louder I shouted, the louder the decibels of the jamming. But people could hear in the chamber, they sat away from the microphones. People in the gallery couldn't hear a thing. Afterwards, I inquired about this. The doorkeepers are all ex-military. said to me, that was sabotage, my lady. Well, I made formal inquiries and was told it was a faulty microphone. I phoned up a good friend of mine on your side of the Atlantic, who was then the director to the US Congressional Task Force Against Terrorism, and I said, um, does it sound like a faulty microphone to you? I won't repeat his robust language, but no way. It's a polite way of putting it. He said they'd done three things. They'd shown they can penetrate the security of the Palace of Westminster. It's, forgive the colloquialism, an up yours to democracy and a menace to you. I tried to get the authorities to take it seriously, but no, no joy. Faulty microphone was the verdict. That summer, totally unbroke by me, there was an article in one of our Sunday papers which reported the fact that the, um, one of the leading shareholders in the firm responsible for security at the Palace of Westminster Parliament is a leading uh, Muslim, deemed to be an Islamist. Um, he is very closely allied with the National Islamic Front regime in Sudan, and he does, or his firm, does security surveillance for not only Parliament, but also New Scotland Yard, um, 
the British Airways, but do still fly British Airways, in New York Custom, Texaco, our Courts of Justice, and a few other key institutions. When Parliament resumed, I put down a written question and asked if this was true. The answer was perhaps a wonderful example of British complacency. Yes, it was true that this particular person and his firm, IEDS, does do security surveillance for the Palace of Westminster and all these other institutions, but there was no cause for concern. He wasn't actively involved in the day-to-day running of the firm. Well, I wasn't mightily reassured, but I couldn't do much more. Come the tragedy on your side of Atlantic on September the 11th, Parliament reconvened for emergency debates. I did get a few brownie points for having tried to raise awareness of some of these threats in our own societies before September the 11th. But that same journalist got in touch with me and said, you might just be interested to know that this character, Salah Idris, um, has now got, I think it's an 80% shareholding in that firm, so much for lack of interest in it, a controlling shareholding, and now has a significant shareholding in another securities events firm, Protec, which does securities events systems, which means, of course, you know everything about a building, about an organization, about everything, for the British Army, other Ministry of Defence organisations, institutions, and our nuclear installations, Adunre and Salavir. I put down questions again and again, asking whether our anti-terrorism laws prevent the penetration by those with maybe hostile agendas of institutions of key strategic and military significance. So far, I've had no reply. So jihad is a concept I do think in its more strategic and military sense, we do need to take seriously. The final concept I just want to put on the table before us is Sharia, Sharia law. This is advocated by many Muslims. Even in Canada, Canada has had its Sharia um, locations and is being pressed in the UK. The thing I would just like to say about Sharia law, which we need to be aware of, it can be presented in a very plausible way that it, much of it deals with domestic and family issues, and it's obviously uh, culturally sensitive to the Muslim religion, and it doesn't affect non-Christians, uh, non-Muslims. It doesn't affect other people in the community. I would just point out that those of us who live in societies where our laws are based on what was essentially the Judeo-Christian tradition of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, respect for fundamental freedoms, there are aspects of Sharia which are fundamentally incompatible with those deep values. Just two examples. Sharia denies equality before the law as between men and women, between Muslims and non-Muslims. And it also denies that fundamental freedom to choose and change religion. You couldn't choose Islam, of course. That's open choice. If you wish to convert from Islam into another faith, that's apostasy and carries the death penalty. The death penalty in Sharia states, in countries like Britain, increasingly honor-related so-called violence and killings. And there was a very large article in one of, I think it was in the Times by Anthony Brown, who highlighted this particular dilemma, and it was very powerfully written. He said, if you want to convert to be a Muslim, that's widely celebrated and accepted and endorsed, and many people are converting to Islam. It's the fastest growing religion in Britain today. If you want to convert out of Islam, into Christianity or another faith, then you are subjected to intimidation, violence, your home is attacked, your car is attacked, your family is threatened, and that is well documented. And the plight of those Muslims who wish to become Christians in Britain today is dire. And this is a country where we still claim we have our fundamental freedoms.
So Sharia is an issue which we need to be aware of and its implications. Very, very briefly, some of the tactics that are used. First of all, um, an explicit strategy of using our freedoms, using our societies uh, to promote the Islamic agenda. There's a recent book that's come out, and I would recommend it, or that relates to Britain. I think you could find many, many similarities in the United States. It's come out very recently, Islam in Britain. It was brought out by the Barnabas Fund, which is a very respected think tank, does serious, sober research. And Patrick Sudeo, who may be known to some of you, has written the forward to it. And it has one section on this in how um, political Islam is using all our laws and our societies, um, values of our society, to promote its own cause. And one of the key aspects which um, it describes there is how Muslims are always encouraged to organize and organize effectively. And it quotes um, an example, and I'm just trying to get this right, if I may, or maybe I'll come back to in question time. But when um, this was explicitly spelled out by the um, Islamic organizations to the Muslim communities in the UK, you must organize, you must organize politically, you must make sure you don't assimilate properly. Um, you must keep your identity, but you must keep pressure always to get more representation, more reflection of your agenda in local politics, in national politics, and throughout society in an organized way. And we see that happening. For example, we see um, increasingly in the UK uh, the attempts to um, two things. One is inhibit and intimidate those people who speak critically of Islam. George Carey our former Archbishop of Canterbury, made a very sober, very serious scholarly speech in Rome. It was not contentious, it was not confrontational, but for making that speech, which spoke the truth, he was rewarded with a rather dubious uh, reward. The Islamic Society for Human Rights in the UK publishes every year a list of what it calls its Islamophobe of the Year Awards. And of course, you know, it's uh, not good news to be on the Islamophobe of the Year award list. And George Carey was rated very highly on the Islamophobe of the Year award list because he spoke the truth about Islam. And it is intimidating and it is worrying. So intimidation and inhibition is one of the tactics that are used to try to silence people from speaking out about the reality. Secondly, using our political system. The moment we have going through in the UK, I don't think it's yet reached your side of the Atlantic, but legislation which is designed to prevent um, any, it sounds very benign, it sounds something we would all endorse, incitement to religious hatred. I don't want religious hatred, you don't want religious hatred. So it's called incitement to religious hatred legislation. But it's brought in at the behest of the Muslim Council of Britain. They tried to get it through Parliament before the last general election. Um, it was very, very strongly opposed in the House of Lords. It took a lot of briefing to get people to understand what it was all about, but it was strongly opposed. And just before a general election, only uncontentious legislation can go through. So that was obviously contentious. They had to drop it. But the Minister of State in the House of Lords said, as she had to drop that clause from a much larger bill, we regret this, and we will, as soon as we're back in power, we will bring it back as primary legislation. And then our Home Secretary actually wrote to every mosque in the country and apologized that they were not able to get this legislation through and turned it into a party political issue, blaming the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats for their opposition. That was absolutely mendacious. There were many Labour uh, people who spoke against that bill and also many communities up and down the country. 
I had the privilege of meeting the leaders of our black churches, our African churches, our Afro-Caribbean churches, our Asian churches, and discussing the implication of this bill with them. And they got the point very quickly. And they had a marvelous demonstration outside Parliament, huge demonstration with wonderful placards, freedom of speech, freedom to preach, freedom to choose and change religion. And what was lovely is they all sang. They sang gloriously. And you could hear it inside Parliament. And a lot of people came out to actually join in and singing. But most of those are traditional Labour Party supporters. So it was mendacious to say it was a political opposition. People up and down the country are worried, and they're worried for this reason. We don't want religious hatred. But the subtext of that bill is threefold concern about inhibition on freedom of speech, a fundamental freedom. First, it will, and it's admitted that it will, um, limit freedom of speech. It will limit freedom to criticize Islam. That will give offense. An offense can lead to violence. It will inhibit freedom to proselytize one's own faith. That gives offense. An offense can lead to violence. And I was talking to a very gentle man, a former policeman, who lives up in one of our northern cities. And he described, for example, how this could kick in. He lives in a predominantly Muslim community, and one of his neighbors, a very gentle, gracious, elderly man, a good friend, asked him one day what he believed in. He said, well, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. And this Muslim friend, his neighbor, backed right away and he said, don't say it again, don't say it again. If you say that again, I'm going to have to kill you. It's blasphemy. So it's going to have a really inhibiting effect. And even before this legislation is on the statute book, police have been warning people who've been using John Wesley's tradition of preaching in public that this could cause offence, and they may have to think very carefully before they preach the gospel in public in Britain. And the third limitation is one which has actually got a lot of our intelligentsia and our writers concerned, PEN, our, our sort of um, organization for writers, and Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean, you may have seen, have actually come out strongly opposed to this legislation because it will inhibit the freedom to speak in any way satirically or humorously about Islam. And they want to preserve that freedom of speech. It's now back with us again in Parliament, and the speeches have been very fascinating. And when it went through its second reading in the House of Lords um, just a few weeks back, over 80% of the speeches opposed this legislation. People have begun to see the subtext below the innocuous title. But it doesn't mean to say that our present government is not going to push it through. They threaten to use a Parliament Act. So even if it's opposed in the House of Lords, it'll probably go through in some form and will be a very serious implication for freedom of speech. It's just an example of how people who are thinking strategically can use the freedoms of a free society to limit those freedoms and ultimately to use those freedoms for their own agendas. So very briefly, as I come to a conclusion, one other sort of measure which is used very effectively is trying to develop an alternative cultural hegemony to use education in universities and schools um, and also by using all the other freedoms that they have building mosques and cultural centers to set up an alternative Islamic agenda and an alternative appreciation of Islam in a way that's going to be according to their agenda eventually so persuasive and so pervasive that it will take over. And one example of that is the asymmetry. Whereas they have the freedom and are welcome and have the resources, very well resourced, to set up wonderful and very attractive stores at university, Freshers' Day and that kind of thing, encouraging people to engage with the positive aspects of Islam. 
be Christians on a guilt trip, except the fact that, for example, I just heard last week, the University of Newcastle, the Christian Union, is not allowed to distribute a Bible. There is such a symmetry here in terms of the use or abuse of freedom. So my conclusion is I urge us to think about ways in which we can seek peaceful coexistence and mutual respect with those Muslims who would be willing to share the values of living in our society and would be willing to protect the freedoms of others in the societies in which they live by building bridges, not creating walls. And just, I mentioned, I'd mentioned one uh, positive initiative I was able to take in Indonesia. Having been in the Kinning Fields in Indonesia, in the Malaccas and Sulawesi, and seen the devastation and the horrors of that jihad, I also made many friends with many of the traditional Muslim leaders who are moderates. Many of them actually helped the Christians defend their churches uh, in the early days of that jihad against the Laska jihad. And many Christians, when there was counter-attacks and reprisals, helped the Muslims protect their mosques when there was a counter-attack. So there was still a lot of goodwill between the two communities. And the moderate Muslim leaders wanted, after several years of this fearsome jihad, to normalize relations with the Christian communities. They wanted help. It was difficult to do it in the conflict zone. So I had the great privilege in Jakarta of launching a new organization with this very long title. We couldn't make it any shorter. The International Islamic Christian Organization for Reconciliation and Reconstruction. Take a breath. It mercifully abbreviates to ICOR. And former president of Indonesia, Abdurrahman Wahid, is our honorary president. And I was very pleased last year when the British government funded an interfaith delegation from Ambon, from, from the whole of Maluku, actually to come over to the UK to develop the principles and the policies of reconciliation and reconstruction. They worked very hard. They went back home. A few months ago, when militants tried to generate conflict again, it was very quickly contained. And it was generally agreed. It was because of the initiative and sponsored by ICOR, which had enabled the leaders of both communities to develop good faith, and such good faith, that they would share with each other if caches of arms were found or they had bits of intelligence that conflict was going to break out to contain it in their respective communities. And as a result of that, earlier this year, I was invited to Jakarta by the Islamic State University, where they were holding a conference on interfaith education to try to promote the teaching of different faiths in their pasandrin, or their religious schools, to promote interfaith understanding, respect, and harmony. So there are initiatives we can take, I believe we must take, to work with Muslim friends in our own country and elsewhere to build bridges, not walls. But I would also say to those of us who I think are facing a very real threat to our spiritual, cultural, and political heritage in our own countries, that those overtures, these dialogues, any undertakings which we embark upon must be based on realism, on understanding the total picture and what really is at stake. Because I say what is at stake is nothing less than the precious heritage which we have inherited, often at great sacrifice from our fathers and our forefathers and previous generations. And I believe we have a responsibility to pass on that heritage, our spiritual heritage, our political heritage of freedom to our children and our children's children. It is under threat at the moment. And thank you for letting me share my concerns with you tonight.
I, I give up. <laughs> That's seven syllables. Okay. <laughs> Baroness, thank you. Uh, one quick question about Ishtahad is in the rabbinic tradition and Jesus' tradition, teaching was accomplished by allowing students to ask their toughest questions. And in Islam, back to the Quran, uh, I see no hospitality for hard questions from those outside the faith, limited within. And in the face of those who are jihadist, how do we overcome this? Or, in other words, we want dialogue, but what do we do when those on the other side do not want dialogue? I think that is one of the greatest challenges. And I think what we need to do is at least to work with those Muslims who are prepared, and it's very difficult for them. Because I think one thing one needs to understand is that, in, and this is in parentheses, but in, is a fundamental difference between the, if you like, the mindset or the Weltanschauung of those of us who live in so-called Western societies and Islam, is that in a culturally diverse, where we have cultural diversity and political pluralism, um, if we look at a, a sort of box, religion is one bit, and we have family, and we have law, and the military, and everything is cultural diversity, and there is a separation between these different spheres. In Islam, Islam is the box, and everything else was in it. So for a Muslim, their Muslim identity is first and foremost, and therefore everything else has to fit within that, their family law, their practice of their religion, and so on. And so it's much harder for them to break out of that primary identity to be critical of it. It is for us, where we have this pluralism, and therefore criticism and differentiation is part of our worldview. So for many moderate Muslims, it is extremely difficult even for them to stand outside Islam as it were and challenge. Also, if they do, they're very often intimidated and um, very much threatened by their, their fellow Muslims. But there are those who are willing, and there are some who are, are writing. Irshid Manji, you may have come across the Canadian, who is very robust on women's rights. And there are those who do, some who do come to a very sticky end, like Theo van Gogh. I've seen the film that he made, the Dutch filmmaker, and the parliamentarian, the Somali parliamentarian who worked with him on that. As we know, Theo van Gogh came to an extremely nasty end. And what many people may not know is that knife was plunged into his heart that finally killed him had a letter attached to it, which was full of the most fearful uh, threats and intimidations against the Somalian MP. And she had to go into hiding. And she's a very brave woman indeed. So for many Muslims who do want to step outside and criticize, uh, they are taking a big risk. But those who do, and maybe we find more of them perhaps in some of the more distant parts away from the Middle East, like um, uh, um, Indonesia, um, where they have a little bit more freedom um, because they do still have embedded in their societies the concepts of a certain amount of tolerance and freedom of speech. We must give a hand of friendship to them because this is not a word that I would insult Muslims by using in their context because they've got to develop their own version of it. But for Christians, I think the word reformation is a key word. Where we broke out and we were able to speak critically and think critically. And if there are those Muslims who are able to break out and try to think critically, open up in jihad, um, they must have a hand of friendship for two reasons. One is because their undertaking is vital for the peaceful coexistence between two great world religions. And secondly, because they are vulnerable. Many of them are living, many of them cannot live in their native countries. Many of them can come to countries such as yours. Many of them are working under pseudonyms because they're at risk. But we must give them the hand of friendship. And we must give the hand of friendship to all those Muslims who are trying to adjust, who are living in uh, 
liberal democratic societies are trying to bring forth an Islam that will be compatible and not confrontational. And they are, that's why I say bridges, not walls. But they are in risk, they're in danger, it's difficult theologically and conceptually for them, and so they need all the help we can give them without being patronizing. Hello. From, uh, from what you said earlier about what you are, basically the entire lecture, from what you know of, of Islam, would you say reasonably that these moderate Islamics or, or, or Muslims um, are essentially heretics if they are apart from the sword passages that you vaguely cited earlier? And, and, and then in, in that sense, are we supposed to or are ideally supposed to peacefully coexist with uh, a heresy, an Islamic heresy, as opposed to a true form of Islam? Thank you. I think the answer to that probably goes back in the history of Islam itself. So in the early centuries, Islam itself was open to that kind of critical analysis. If you look at a contemporary version of that manifestation, um, the former president of Indonesia, Abdurrahman Wahid, uh, gave a very good account of that in the launch we had of ICOR in Jakarta. And he was able to say, and had the courage to say, that contemporary Islam needs to open up the gate of it jihad, needs to open up critical debate, for Islam itself to discern what aspects of Islam uh, are appropriate in the contemporary world and where Islam does need uh, to criticize itself and to consider reform. So there are voices who can say that. The issue really is that the um, more radical, the more traditional, the more, and particularly the Wahhabi version of Islam, which is generated from Saudi Arabia and disseminated with huge resources from Saudi Arabia, is the traditional hard line and non-open to criticism Islam. And therefore, there, is, there are divisions within Islam, but at the moment, probably the most influential in terms of spreading Islam around the world is the Wahhabi kind that's largely funded from Saudi um, and the voices of people like Abdurrahman Wahid, who will probably be considered a heretic by them, but he is as valid in terms of the early history of Islam as are the others. Um, their voices do need to be encouraged and listened to, but we must be very, very um, appropriately aware that much of the Islam that's been propagated um, in our own societies, and maybe through our universities, our schools, um, in many of the mosques, um, is the Wahhabi kind, which is the hardline one and which justifies the kind of theology that underpins Al-Qaeda and other kinds of Islamic terrorism and international militaristic jihad. So that's where it's at, and that's the challenge for us. Baroness, I'd like to thank you for your courage. A good friend of mine, Robert Spencer, who is the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam and the Crusades, lives under a false address because of all the death threats against his wife and himself and his children. So... Uh, you're, you're, you're doing something that takes no mean personal as well as political courage. I would like to ask you, uh, you know, having watched television and seen what's happening in France, um, how much have you seen attempts to criticize the doctrinal assertions of Islam and the political aspirations of Sharia be shunted aside through false charges of racism? And what is the best way to take this red herring and throw it out the window? Thank you. That is actually an extremely timely question because just today um, I had uh, correspondence from my office back in the UK and um, 
is a very courageous guy, British guy, who used to be the British ambassador to Saudi Arabia and to Syria, but he's become increasingly concerned about the implications of immigration and behind that the subtext of those immigrants from which part of the world they're coming from and the implications that's going to have for the nature of British society. And he's not openly anti-Islamic at all, but this sort of clearly uh, aligned through that is the fact that we have a very, very rapidly growing proportion of Muslims in our own society who are not so um, willing, in fact, maybe theologically unable to assimilate and integrate into the wider society, whereas so many of our other uh, people who've come from other traditions, the Jews, the Hindus, the Sikhs, the Buddhists, I mean, are very happy to keep their cultural traditions but don't want to change the nature of society as such. And there was a very, um, shall I say, hurtful argument of articles in The Guardian just a few days ago accusing him of racism. And this is where it's beginning to hit, you know, because uh, obviously racism is a highly sensitive issue. And he's written a very good reply. Um, but this is one of the um, attacks that is being used to inhibit people from speaking about Islam, eliding criticism of Islam with being racist. And so that, again, is something which we need to be aware of. We need to make the distinctions, if possible, preempt, if not to counterattack very quickly and put the record straight. And I just see on the guilt trip, um, I, one of the things that worries me is we have this huge guilt thing about the Crusades. And I understand there may have been a film shown recently in your country showing the Crusades and putting the West in a very, very bad light. Well, what I always say when people come to me with this huge guilt about the Crusades is that we're not doing our spiritual heritage any favors, taking them out of context. But this is where our ignorance, and we are so ignorant, kicks in, and that's what makes us so vulnerable, and that's why we go on the guilt trips. Now, what were the Crusades? They were a response to 400 years of Islamic aggression. It wasn't until Christendom had lost the Bible lands, North Africa, much of Europe, right up to the north of Spain and further, did Christendom eventually say enough is enough and we've got to stop this. So the Crusades were not an initial act of aggression by Christendom. They were a response to 400 years of loss of Christian lands. And granted, one has to grant, things happened on both sides, not acceptable by modern-day standards. But it was on both sides. And as I say, we're not doing our spiritual and cultural heritage any favors, taking the Crusades out of context and going on a guilt trip about them. But so few Christians ever say that. We go around burdened with guilt. And I would like to see put our guilt in context and also rectify it where appropriate with a bit of knowledge. And that's why I think it's so essential that we actually wake up and study, and study history and study Islam. And so when we go into interfaith dialogues or political dialogues, we're not naive, we're not vulnerable to all the guilt trips that are thrown at us, and that we do our homework. And if we do our homework, we stand more robustly and with greater principle for the kind of values that we have inherited and which I think we cherish. And I have a huge respect um, for Robert Spencer's, and I haven't read his book yet, but I, I can't wait to read it. But the fact he's going under false address is totally um, typical, totally compatible with what's happened to so many people who've had the courage to tell the truth. And I've probably shortened my life expectancy rapidly every day when I do speak out about it. When you get to my age, you haven't got so much of natural life left to lose. So it's not such a sacrifice. But it's, it's a very real issue, this intimidation, this threat, this censorship. But we must speak out because ultimately, as we know, it's only the truth that can make us free. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Thank you again for your courage, Baroness. Um, 
Uh, I would ask, what, um, what, what steps do you think can be taken as a realist to engage the Muslim world as it exists now, especially in the Middle East, which is where much of the vitriolic Islamism that you've been referencing tonight originates from, um, and specifically what steps can be taken to slow the uh, channeling of oil funds through Saudi Arabia, through Wahhabist structures there, and back out into Islamic charities abroad, which then fund terrorist actions. Thank you. Well, first of all, I think so we need to be informed so we can challenge the propaganda. I mean, so much of what inflames the debates um, about the Middle East, which is such a complex and contentious area, is actually ignorance. You know, there are two sides to every question, and usually it's only one side that gets put. In Britain, I can't speak for the States, but um, our British media are very, very pro-Palestinian. And um, a lot of that then it gets refracted. I also have some concern that I think international Islam probably does not at the moment want peace in the Middle East. It's a very good cause as Belai. And it allows this indignation and the fueling of indignation um, amongst Muslims around the world. And therefore, it serves a purpose on the international agenda. Um, as far as your question about, I've got my own handwriting in this light, um, oh, the funding and, and charities. Yes, again, I think we need to be aware, the, the modest publication that's out there on um, Islam, Islamism and the West was actually brought out by the American Foreign Policy Council. We launched that in June of this year. But at the heart of it was actually our fundamental analysis of the nature of Islam and its threat to freedom. But the American Foreign Policy Council asked us to bring out a slightly enlarged version, which has more on what's happening in your country, which makes one's hair stand on end, and also the Islamic concept of charity, because we have been so naive in sort of thinking when we use one word in our um, vocabulary, it means the same in their vocabulary. And of course, charity in um, Islam is very different. In our tradition, our charity is inherently unconditional, certainly in the modern day. When we take out our aid, uh, we do not use it as a requirement that people convert to Christianity. Um, I mean, I, I deliberately keep the name Christian out of my humanitarian organization because we will as the biblical mandate is speak for the oppressed, heal the sick, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, not heal the Christian sick, feed the Christian hungry, speak for the Christian oppressed. Our advocacy, our compassion must be unconditional. And therefore, we will offer our aid and advocacy to all in need, no strings attached. In Islam, it's a very different question. Um, I remember speaking to so many people suffering and dying in southern Sudan. People were dying babies. And they said we could go to government-held areas and get food, medicine, clothing, what we need. But we know if we do, we're going to have to convert to Islam. And we would rather live and die as Christians. To make that decision for yourself is a tough call. To make it for your kids and allow your kids to die. As a mother and a grandmother, I can't imagine the anguish of allowing that to happen. It's the price of our faith when you're up against Islamic charity because it is conditional. And it's very interesting that we see growing throughout many parts of Africa uh, the use of charity their form of charity, Dawa, which is to Islamize. And um, two good friends of mine, the Anglican Bishop of Meridian, southern Sudan, and Bishop Taban, um, from, also from southern Sudan, they showed me a very disturbing a document which they have, and it came into their possession. And it is the policy for the Islamization of southern Sudan. And it's all spelled out there in detail, the budget, the number of schools, teacher training, 
the cost of teacher training, school pupils, school meals, school uniforms, school textbooks, which of course will be Islamic textbooks. On the health side, the costings of doctors, nurse training, midwifery, clinics, nurses' uniforms, medication, comes to a total, I think, of $229 million. That would go to Saudi, and Saudi will provide it. And so that whole agenda of the Islamization of Sudan through charity is all in place. And um, my African friends say to us, but where are the Christians? You know, where are the... You've, you've reneged. We've held our guilt trip about missions. And so Christians are no longer active as they were in the mission field. And so there's a huge vacuum. And that vacuum is going to be filled by strategic Islam. And bear in mind that conversion to Islam is a one-way street. Once you've converted, it's very hard to convert out again. And so we really are up here in the field of charity against a misunderstanding of the use of the concept of charity as between our worldview, our theological position, which is unconditional, compassion in action, and the Islamic concept of charity, which is a tool for conversion. And we need to be aware of that, and I think we need to think of appropriate responses to that if we're not going to see vulnerable societies in poverty, degraded by war, totally vulnerable. You know, if your child is dying, it's very hard not to take your child. And in many countries in Africa, this use of charity is growing very, very fast, and we are losing ground fast. I think the Archbishop is nodding in agreement. In light of this uh, threat to uh, Western society, have Christian churches and the Catholic Church in particular uh, formed any organization or have united in any fashion to battle this at a spiritual or religious uh, level? Certainly at the very front line, when you're being attacked by jihad warriors, and again, I think the Archbishop will agree in Nigeria, there's a Christian association for Nigeria in which all the denominational barriers have come right down and the churches have united, and I think you would endorse that. Um, so at the very front line, yes, and certainly in Indonesia when I was down in the Malaccas or in Sulawesi, um, the traditional Christian uh, uh, denominations there, the Roman Catholics and the Protestants, have united very solidly. Um, but that's at the front line. And that's when you're actually in the killing fields. What we need to do, those of us who have the privilege of living in freedom and not at the moment in the killing fields, who ought to be supporting our brothers and sisters who are dying in those killing fields, is ourselves to get our act together. We've got the freedom. We've got the freedom to study. We've got the freedom to learn. We've got the resources to think strategically. And I'm afraid we are asleep at the switch. We are not studying our Islam. How many people have actually made a serious attempt to understand Islam? And if we, who have the freedom and the privilege of living in freedom, don't use our freedom to understand the nature of the threat, then we're betraying those who are dying for that for which we stand. And I feel passionately about that. And I would like to see a realistic course on Islam taught in every theological college, in every seminary, in every Bible school, and also in our other institutions of education, so we really understand not to be confrontational, not to be aggressive, but in order to know the truth and to pray strategically for an appropriate response. And just one little example of that, I was in Malaysia, in Kuala Lumpur. Now, people think Malaysia is one of the exemplar Muslim societies. But the Christians in Malaysia tell me it's like a piece of wood. It's varnished on the top, but underneath, Christianity is crumbling and being dissipated and destroyed. It took 27 years when I was in Kuala Lumpur. Um, I was told I visited the church. It took 27 years for this church to get permission to be built, a Roman Catholic church. 
In the end, permission was granted. It had to be built in the middle of an industrial factory estate. It had to look exactly like a factory. It couldn't look like a church. And the only way to identify it was a little plaque on the front which said a church of whoever it was. We go inside, it's a beautiful church. But it took 27 years, whereas mosques are growing fast all around freely all the time. And the university chaplain told me how when Christian students, who tend to be discriminated against anyway but get to university, they are immediately um, put under huge pressure and they're invited to debates and they have to taste a lot of hostile questioning. And they're not prepared to answer those questions. And the question of the Crusades is one example. They're forever vilified for the Crusades. And nobody's taught them the truth about the Crusades. And so they come back battered and guilty and ready to give up their Christianity. And what's even more serious, the university chaplain himself doesn't know his Islam. And he himself doesn't know the history of the Crusades. So he can't help his students to inoculate them or prepare them for the assaults which they're going to face. So... My plea and response to your question is, let us, those of us who have the privilege of living in freedom, use our freedom to do our homework, to understand Islam, and then we can really talk in a serious and responsible way about how to face the threats that are very real and growing fast. At the moment, Islam is on a roll, and we are letting it happen, and we will be guilty if we lose our heritage.